Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque. From Madison, Wisconsin, this is Jim Healy. I'm the Cinematheque's Director of Programming. While the Cinematheque's regular cinema screening spaces remain closed due to the ongoing pandemic, our series of free view-at-home films continues over this Halloween weekend with Demons, a 1980s cult horror movie that, among other things, plays with the notion of movie theaters as a source for viral infection and demonic possession. As writer Mike McPadden describes it in Heavy Metal Movies, quote, Demons is Italy's hallucinogenic meta-commentary on its own berserk splatter movies of the 1980s. The film takes place in a theater showing a berserk splatter movie from Italy. The movie within a movie features a silver monster mask that transforms its wearer into a demon. The same mask is on display in the lobby. In fact, on her way inside, a hooker cuts herself on the mask. Before long, the prostitute's wound spews goo, and she grotesquely mutates into a demon, a lot like the one up on screen. From there, Demons is an electrically kinetic orgy of body-breaking and gore-spraying, as one patron after another gets bitten and infected, flailing wildly in some truly awesome monster makeup." End quote. Filmed in Berlin on brilliantly designed sets, Demons is produced and co-written by Italian horror maestro Dario Argento in collaboration with director Lamberto Bava, son of the godfather of Italian horror Mario Bava. The soundtrack for this fun, stylish, and deliriously over-the-top scarefest features a pulsating score from Goblin's Claudio Simonetti and a plethora of pop, rock, and metal songs from artists like Saxon, Rick Springfield, Go West, Billy Idol, and Pretty Maids. From October 29th through November 1st only, the Cinematheque is offering unlimited home viewing of the original uncut version of Demons. To receive access, simply send an email to info at and make sure to include the word Demons in the subject line. That's info at and make sure to include the word Demons in the subject line. On this episode of Cinema Talk, our special guest is writer and cinephile Mike McPadden, author of two positively essential film guides, the recently published teen movie Hell, and now in its third printing, Heavy Metal Movies, a compendium that describes itself as, quote, guitar barbarians, mutant bimbos and cult zombies amok in the 666 most ear and eye ripping big scream films ever, end quote. Mike McPadden has provided commentary tracks for several home video releases on Blu-ray, and he's also the co-host of two other podcasts we highly recommend, Crackpot Cinema, co-presented with TV writer Aaron Lee, and 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s, co-hosted with the Cinematech's own Ben Reiser. Here now is my discussion with Mike McPadden. Mike McPadden, welcome to Cinema Talk. Thank you so much, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, now, when I saw Demons, or at least what I remember about the, the film coming out when it was originally released in the U.S. in 1986, was that there were two major selling points for it. Uh, one we'll get into a little bit later, which was the soundtrack and the artists right. and the heavy metal artists on the soundtrack. The other was uh, it was released unrated because of the extreme shocking content in fact in your book you even have a picture of the poster uh that has the uh that has the warning on it uh, that (laughs) some these scenes will be are too shocking uh may be considered too shocking and uh no one under 17 will be admitted 
uh, I guess period, right? No one, no one under seventeen was admi- was the idea was that they well, was, yeah, the idea, but yeah, it was In fact, it wasn't like an R-rated film where you could just you know bring a guardian or no, or a parent but, or something. But like it, the type of theaters that showed these type of movies, they were, you know, I'm surprised anyone over seventeen was was in the theater at some points. Absolutely, including myself. Yeah. Now the reason for them not submitting to the MPAA, I presume, was the you know, what was perceived anyway, or thought of as the, as the movie's blood and guts factor, the extreme gore. Uh, how gory is the film compared to, you know, the other kind of unrated releases of the time? Well, it's, it's very different. And I think, you know, it, it started, the trend started with Dawn of the Dead, uh, executive produced as Demons was by Dario Argento. And, you know, they could not possibly get an R rating for that. That was only ever going to be rated X. So they said, well, let's put this out with this giant warning that will just be another, you know, bit of ballyhoo selling point. And it was tremendously successful. I always loved, and a lot of other movies uh, put this on. The, it said at the end, like, there is no sexual content in this film. <laughs> and it was like, well, you know, you may, yeah, I probably would have been more tantalized if they implied that there was, but... Anyway, they were separating themselves from hardcore pornography, I would imagine. But and a lot of other the a lot of the other unrated movies did that. Um, in terms of gore, it's right up there with all of them. It's a bit different because it's much more rubber monstery than the other Italian splatter movies that you think of. Um, the ones that you know come come to mind immediately is you know Suspiria and uh, the Cannibal Holocaust uh, movies and. Where those are, um, the the cannibal movies are, you know, horrifically realistic. And then the, um, you know, more operatic Argento and uh, the Gates of Hell and things like that, there's an element of surrealism to them. But I always find them, uh, I always found them completely uh, disgusting. (laughs) I was really grossed out by them. And I, I loved it. I've just kind of come around to them more recently, and uh, I, I like them a lot more than I thought I would. When Demons came out, I would say I was a much more timid uh, moviegoer, and uh, you know, and I avoided the theatrical release because then also I probably wasn't old enough to get in yet. I was probably just fifteen or sixteen, you know, thinking that I yeah. wouldn't get in, but. Of course, I'm, I'm sure I would have been able to find a way. I was um, 17 when it came out. And um, I have to admit that the Italian movies up until that point had really kind of left me cold because they're so weird. They're so hallucinatory. They seemed ridiculous to me. And they are ridiculous, but I, I later learned to grasp onto them as kind of, you know, waking nightmares. The one yeah. that turned me around was uh, Creepers as it was released in the States, which was Phenomena, the Argento movie, which was like fall of 85 that came out, also advertised with the heavy metal soundtrack. And it was like, you know, Motorhead, Iron Maiden, and Bill Wyman from the Rolling Stones was like on the poster. Um, But that was so silly in such a way that I could relate to, while at the same time there was a degree of gravitas, because initially watching like Suspiria and... Uh, Inferno and Tenebre, they just, I could not plug into them on a human level. 
And then, you know, it might have been Jennifer Connelly. You know, here's a Brooklyn girl who was right around my age that, that drew me in. And I was like, okay, I can relate to this. And it's still insane. And now I'm liking the insanity. But um, my experience with demons was, so it opened May 31st in New York. And my I was graduating from high school. And I was, our, our uh, classes were done. They had told me they were going to let me graduate, which was always iffy. And the couple of days before, we, we had to wear uh, tuxedos to graduation. So a couple of days before, it was either Tuesday or Wednesday before we graduated on that Thursday. Uh, I had to go into school in Manhattan to go pick up my tux. So on the way in, I'm walking through the West 4th Street train station, and I saw the subway posters for demons. And I saw that, like, you know, the, the, the weird demonic eyes and the people rising up and that tagline, they're going to make, they, they will make cathedrals they will make cemeteries their cathedrals and they correct right. it it's different in the movie and the cities will be your tombs i was like all right that looks awesome so i picked up my tux um and then i was just like i'm gonna go see that so i uh i actually walked it was a beautiful you know early summer day and uh i walked down to delancey street and i saw it at the essex theater which was a great old grindhouse on the lower east side and I do regret, one of the great regrets of my life is that I didn't put my tux on and go into the theater that day. That would have been the classiest guy that I ever saw demons. But I had the tux next to me. I held it very tight in the Essex theater. Well, I want to talk more about Grindhouse experience later, but... Uh... The yeah. you know, back, to the, back to the gore level, for me, you know, watching it now... Um, you know, it's so it's so stylized and so bathed in those colors that you're used to from Italian horror movies, you know, especially starting with Argento's other productions that it's I find it very hard right. to be, you know, turned off by it, you know, certainly not scared by it. But it's you know, it's it's really kind of beautiful right. in its own way. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of muck and pus oh, for and, sure, yeah. you know, and, you know, but even the blood isn't always Red, red, you know, sometimes it's green and blue and yeah. Yeah, it looks green, like uh, you said. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and that versus other unrealistic gore, for some reason, there's, there's I, the pain has always registered with me in the Italian movies, especially the Argento movies. And, and you know, and, and we could, you know, volumes can be written about that psychosis with him wearing the black gloves and right, acting as right. the killer in his own movies. But, uh, but the pain is always palpable there. Whereas, you know, some other stuff like the Herschel Gordon Lewis, where it's just kind of like mm. bright red barn paint. Um, I think, you know, I always said with the Italian stuff, I wince first and then I laugh kind of uncomfortably. And then with, uh, H.G. Lewis, I, I laugh right. first, always. It seems funny. And then it is gross when it, you know, they pulls out the tongue and all the other muscles are connected to it. And then, you know, it's a sheep's tongue that he got from the butchers and you can only imagine the smell. And yeah, so it's a visceral experience and all around. The gore uh, is in, in demons, as you say, I, th I think you, I think you meant to say demons as well as the other Argento films has this, uh, this pain element to it. How do you think that that's that that's put yeah. across? Is it is it just the actors' performances? Is it the is it uh, the sound effects? That is a great question. I I, don't, I think all the elements have to come together there. Uh, the other time I, ex I I've experienced pain is mm. in the Cronenberg movies, 
Um, I think of Bob Oblivion splitting in half at the end of Videodrome, and I was like wrenching in my seat. Or mm, Jeff Goldblum yeah. and The Fly. And, and I think there is a level of intensity that, well, you yeah. know what, it's spell casting, is what I would say specifically. There's so much black magic going on in these Italian movies, and they're so dreamlike. And when I say that, I don't mean like sometimes there is literally a witch casting a spell, but um, I feel like they do put you into a trance-like state. I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, that, that brings me to the, the, the next thing I want to talk about is, you know, I, 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 I recall seeing Phenomena first uh, when it was called Creepers, and, it, and there was something hallucinogenic about it. Um, and I think that film and Demons were really my gateway to Italian genre cinema. And that, you know, by that I mean everything from um, the sword and sandal Hercules movies from the 50s and 60s through the right. spaghetti westerns through these giallo and horror films. And a, another part of that uh, spellcasting and hallucinatory quality is the dubbing itself, um, which... Which right. when I was More when I was anything, younger, I was put I off say. by it because you know it, it's it's sometimes the the lips don't always match. In in the case of demons and a lot of the horror films, the actors are actually speaking English a lot of the time, uh, right. and and the dubbing you know is is pretty close. But it's it's the it's the echoey kind of you know recorded in a booth later quality that adds to that spell casting hallucinatory quality. I think you're talking about. It totally does, and I, I agree with you. First off, on the, uh, those are the two movies that led me into Italian cinema. Um, plus, also, I, we, I had a film course uh, senior year at Xavier High School, and we watched Eight and a Half, and that was a mind-blower to me. So the, all this was converging at the same time for me. Um, but it, it, the voices, that's what put me off in, initially. And then, that, and then that is what is the gateway Absolutely. to the charm think, for me. You know, since after then. I saw these films, I was ready for uh, Sergio Leone and... You know, and discovered Fellini right. too at the same time. So it, you know, it kind of takes off to the, after that. I want to talk a little bit about the directors and producers. I mean, we we mentioned Dario Argento already. His name was a big selling point, uh, along with the gore and the and the soundtrack. It was Dario Argento presents. Um, you would have thought he, you know, it was one of his films. He just co-wrote it and produced it though. And the director is Lamberto Bava. Do you know anything about? Bava? Well, he's, of course, the son of Mario Bava, who is the uh, father of Italian horror films, uh, in addition to being the father of uh, the director of Demons. Um, and he worked on his father's movies, and he worked on a number of other, uh, you know, classic Italian horror movies, uh, usually as an assistant director, up to this movie where he finally got to direct one. Oh, no, he had yeah. been directing since 1980, I'm sorry. But this was really his, like, uh, well, Blade in the Dark is also. I just a good saw. I just saw his, his first film is called uh, Macabre, and I just saw that. That's up on Amazon Prime right now. It's it's also pretty good. It has a really great uh, stinger at the end, almost as good as the one in Demons. Yes. Yeah. Um, and in, uh, the, we should we should mention that the mask in Demons, the one that kind of sets everything off, the both in the theater lobby and the movie in the movie is a direct homage to the mask in the movie that kind of starts it all for Italian horror, which is uh, Bava's Black Sunday. 
also known as La Mascara del Demonio, or The Mask of the Demon. And I remember seeing that on Channel 11 as a kid and being really, really freaked out by that mask. I think a lot of people discovered that film on yeah. TV. It was I, I didn't know yeah. it existed yeah. until, you know, cult movies, Danny Perry's book, which we'll, we can talk about later, too. But um, And uh, that kind of leads us into, you know, talking about the, the lobby and the movie within a movie, this... This right. this sub subgenre of movies with movie theaters as central location, and you know, there's many. In fact, uh, one of the first series uh, I put together here at the Cinematheque in Madison was projecting the cinema, which was an entire series of movies with movie theaters as their central location. And uh, I chose not to show Demons, although it was very high on on my list, and I didn't want to do too many horror films. And I opted instead for a wonderful film from right around the same time called Anguish, uh, yeah. a, another European uh, co-production directed by uh, Spaniard Bigas Luna, uh, which, which has a killer inside a movie theater that's showing a movie with a killer inside a movie theater. Right. <laughs> and, and speaking of hallucinatory, this is a film that I think actually tries to hypnotize the audience with a spell at one point it's i would agree with that completely it is a mind blower and it i didn't know quite what to make of that when i first saw it i'm a fan and i and i have to say it's yeah. very when you see the film in a theater and we even showed it it is a reputable venue as the chazen museum of art here on campus uh it is still unsettling i remember looking over my shoulder at a couple of points and looking back at the projection booth and uh, it makes me regret not ever having seen Demons in a theater, but having to discover it on, on uh, VHS shortly after it was in theaters. But uh, maybe we can rectify that and, and, and do an Anguish Demons double feature one. When wow. We, yeah, that's a natural. When we return to, uh, that should to be. movie theaters. But there's, there's the, the, uh, within this subgenre, which would be everything from buster keaton sherlock jr up through woody sure. allen's purple rose of cairo and um the movie drive-in there's there's there are horror examples you know the demons in anguish of course and also drive-in massacre there's a film uh is it from the early 90s popcorn popcorn's 1990 yeah and uh another film we showed in the in the series joe dante's matinee which isn't a horror film but is about is about a horror film being shown in a, right. in a theater, a, a kind of classic. About the theatrical horror movie experience. Right, as, you know, kind of filtered through a William Castle type, right. type right. figure. Um, and uh, in, in Demons, the theater is called the Metropole. And it's kind of, if you've ever been to Europe, it's kind of a classic urban European theater. I don't know if it's, if the interior of the theater is a set or an actual theater. Now, the auditorium... Yeah, it's a set. The audit even the auditorium? Yeah. Yes. They built it for the movie, and then it became a nightclub called Goya. Oh, fantastic. That acted for a... That, that stood for a long time, and it still stands, and they have had uh, horror conventions there in the building. Oh, that's great. It's in, it's in Berlin or in, in Rome? It's in Berlin, yeah. So yeah. both the exteriors and the interiors were all done in, yes. in Berlin. Yes, yeah. And uh, they didn't keep the helicopter. Uh, you know, I don't know <laughs> offhand. I can't confirm. It would take up yeah. a lot of space in a nightclub. Yeah. But who knows? At the convention, they might have recreated. It'd been a, somebody's cosplay. Somebody could have come as the helicopter and 
splayed out on the floor. And it's a highly stylized theater. There's a little bit of Art Deco in the lobby, and there's, you know, some other kind of modern touches to it. And then some, you know, the auditorium's just kind of classic balcony, you know, main floor. Right. Uh, but it's it's wholly convincing as a as a real theater, I, I would say. Completely, yeah. So many theaters that I've been to in my life at that time look just like that. Sure, a single screen theater in a city somewhere, yeah. And we should probably discuss the posters that are up inside. <laughs> yeah, they're great. And uh, we had, I'll confess this a little, we had a little pre-show confab, and I was so excited because I noticed one poster that I had never noticed before. And then Jim told me, he beat me to it. He said, can you believe this poster is up there? And we both in our notes had three exclamation points following the title. So the movies that are up there, it's uh, ACDC Let There Be Rock, the concert movie. Uh, the 1985 reissue of Metropolis with the Giorgio Moroder score and the rock uh, songs in it. Um, the UK quad uh, for Creepshow. Four Flies on Grey Velvet. And then bizarrely, well, I mean, we know it's not bizarre. We know what it is. They just needed another poster. Harry and Son, <laughs> which is the the unpopular Paul Newman, Robbie Benson drama from right around that time. Which, you know, is, you know, definitely scarier than No Nukes. and <laughs> Oh, No Nukes, right. I always forget No Nukes. And I think uh, Herzog's Nosferatu is up, too, which is... Which is That's right. Much. I apologize. Yes, Nosferatu, too. So the posters are emblematic, right? I mean, it's it, this is a heavy sure. metal monster movie. Yeah, this is this is a rock and roll right. movie. This is yeah, and specifically metal. Yeah. All right, we'll get back to that in just a minute. Um, you know, the movie within a movie is very self-aware, right? It's it's, it's a right. lot of gibberish being spoken, and just any excuse yes. to get the violence and the zombification right. going, right? So you have lines like. Uh, the sleep of reason gives birth to monsters, you know, which <laughs> yeah. I, I think it must be a quote from something, but uh, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not two half quotes. Uh, and 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 as you said, the the the, the less correct English version of they will make yeah. cemeteries their cathedrals and tombs your cities. Just kind of confusing if you have to stop and think about Completely. it. Completely. But they and you know I think it's just it made me think of Samuel Jackson in Pulp Fiction who goes into his biblical rant before he kills somebody. And John Travolta says, like, why do you do that? He goes, I, I do that to chill, mother effers. <laughs> I think that's all it is. It's just scary sounding words. Now, the other, the other aspect of the movie that doesn't really seem to kind of play into anything except just offer more gobbledygook is the evocation of Nostradamus. And whatever <laughs> yeah. Nostradamus was predicting, you know, has something to do with this mask turning people into... Well, they explicitly say, this is one of the, my favorite parts, he says, you don't know Nostradamus, he predicted everything. He predicted Hitler, the world wars, the coming of the demons. <laughs> it was like, oh, that's the one we haven't checked off the list yet. Oh, here the we coming go. Of the demon. That's like Albert Brooks's yeah. line in Modern Romance. You never heard of a no-win situation? Vietnam? <laughs> Us? <laughs> right. Yeah. But, uh, but it turns out that Nostradamus, like... Uh, it was like a, a horror figure. Um, there's a couple of like Nostradamus horror movies. Uh, 1957, The Man Without a Body, a.k.a. The Curse of Nostradamus. I, I haven't seen this film, but I love this premise. So uh, George Kaluris stars as a businessman who has a brain tumor. 
And then he finds out that uh, Dr. Robert Hutton is doing, like, head transplant experiments. So he says, well, if I'm going to lose my head, I, I would like to have the head of Nostradamus. <laughs> so then he sets out to steal the head off of Nostradamus's corpse in the crypt. Oh, I'd love to see And it. then there was a Mexican serial, a 12-part serial, called The Curse of Nostradamus. And that's about Nostradamus's son, who is a vampire. And the great K. Gordon Murray who uh, imported a lot of Mexican kids' movies, the crazy Santa Claus movie and, like, Puss in Boots. He edited those 12 episodes into four feature films. The Curse of Nostradamus, The Blood of Nostradamus, and two more. I can't think of the other two. <laughs> and then, of course, there was The Man Who Saw Tomorrow, which was the documentary from 1981. Now, this I saw many that, times on HBO. I was going to say, this was an HBO perennial. I didn't have HBO, but all my friends who had it were freaked out by it. Yeah, the... Did it freak you oh, out? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, always, always watching my back and seeing it right at the time, you know, because it ends with, it ends with, okay, this Nostradamus prophecy, uh, if, you, if you look at it closely, he's saying a, a man will come out of the desert and launch missiles and, you know, and the, the, the great powers will be useless to stop them. The blue turban. Yes. He says the blue turban right. will come out so, of the desert. And, yeah. you know, I think... Man Who Saw Tomorrow had been made in like the late 70s, and I'm seeing it like six years later when, uh, you know, The Day After and Testament are out and, yeah. you know, and, and uh, Martin Sheen is, you know, launching the missiles at the end of the dead zone and, uh, you know, all that stuff. So it, 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 it definitely, sure. uh, as, as, as cheesy and disreputable as that film is, uh, it, uh, it definitely scared me <laughs> sure absolutely you know, because the end of the film suggests but, you know it's it, it could be Gaddafi or somebody like that right know, who's gonna be who's, who's gonna be uh it was i always it was like khomeini when i first right. heard about it it was always the ayatollah khomeini one, yeah, the blue turban one of those guys are you know but then you know orson wells like after the movie came out he went on merv griffin and he was just kind of rolling his eyes at it and he said uh one might as well i'm not doing a good orson wells one might as well make predictions based on random passages from the phone book. <laughs> what was the name of the first? <laughs> Way to promote. What, what was the name of the first film you mentioned uh, the, the, about stealing the head of Nostradamus? The Man Without a Body from 1957. The Man Without a Body starring George Caloris. So do we think George Caloris and uh, Orson Welles at any point during either of those productions reminded anybody <laughs> that they were involved with Citizen Kane? I would bet you Orson did, yeah. You know, I made Citizen Kane. When he was asked to, you know, speak into a microphone as he has famously been recorded losing his mind over. Right. When, when shilling uh, frozen peas. Somebody bring in Mrs. Rogers, please. <laughs> I take direction from one under protest, <laughs> from two under no means. Yeah. So, uh, this, this idea of... You know the movie within the movie, the 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 people in the theater who are who are turning into demons realize at some point that well, it's not the movie that's that's affecting them. You know, even though the the there's parallel action going on on screen, it's actually the theater itself, which probably isn't even the case. It seems to be the mask, and you know, and it spreads right. it spreads a kind of virus. So right. I, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of movies as figuratively and literally. Uh, infectious, i.e., seeing right. something and being uh, altered by it or mutated. Sure. Uh, well, what that brings to mind, have you ever read this book, Flicker? 
the novel by Theodore Rozak. I haven't, but I, I'm going to put it high on my list now. You got to do it. It's it's one of my, it's like a top three novel for me. It's gigantic, so be ready for that. Right. And it, that is about, um, it's sort of about the history of movie fanaticism. Uh, and there's a Pauline Kael figure. There's all these... Uh, you know, uh, Romana Clef, even though it's a fantastical novel with, you know, fantasy and science fiction elements. And it's about this guy who is a movie fan trying to determine what it is that is so powerful about uh, motion pictures way above any other art form. Why do they, ha why do movies have the power to affect and transform people and change their behavior and by extension change the world more than any other previous art form? And it's a worldwide quest and he finds like monks that have been studying this and and they're they're laying it it comes down to whatever is in the brief millisecond between uh clicks of each piece of celluloid that's what they're trying to crack open the black space that's between the, the frames exactly yeah they're trying to determine what that magic is and that's what came to mind when when we were uh you know when you mentioned that just now um in that it, 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 there is something about movies, it, at least in my experience, that is it's the ultimate art form. It's all other art forms in one place. It's you know music, acting, writing, painting, costuming, uh, you know set decoration, and to experience that, and, and it is the waking dream experience. And I feel like as soon as you know anyone who sits in the theater and watches a movie is changed by that experience in a way that. They might not get just looking at a painting museum or might not get uh, sitting in a concert hall at a symphony. Um, well, it's... it's so That's my, my take. It's also, uh, you know, as you and I can attest to, and maybe, maybe this, is a, this is a different thing, it's also addictive. So you... you oh, you know, place, above and beyond. Yeah. Constantly returning yeah. to these spaces to kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, ch chase, chase, chase the demons, <laughs> literally, you know, yeah. to, to, you know, to... Uh, uh, you know, get get that the, that electric feeling over and over again. Um, speaking of, I mean, I remember being three years old and the lights going down in uh, at the Colonial Theater in Keensburg and Pinocchio starting up, and I've been chasing that ever since. Yeah, one of my earliest memories. And mine was a Disney film too, but it was a live action contemporary film right around the same time called The World's Greatest Athlete with. Kurt Russell. No, the, the late Jan Michael Vincent. It was, it was. Wow, Jan Michael and, Vincent. And, oh, my mistake. And, and it was the only, I think they intended it to be a Kurt Russell vehicle, and it was the only one in that right. time that he didn't do. Uh, but they got right. Jan Michael instead, and, uh, and also the late Tim Conway. And uh, I remember the same thing, the lights going down, walking inside, and there's a moment in the film where Tim Conway is uh, shrunk uh, down to a, a couple of inches, and he falls inside a woman's purse. Uh, and <laughs> wow. this, this, this was my this was my gateway drug. Sure, Tim, sure. a shrunken Tim Conway with a with a giant woman's compact. Have you ever seen the movie Getting Lucky from 1990 about a? Uh, leprechaun that lives in a beer bottle. <laughs> no, no, I haven't. Okay, well, it's a discussion for another show. But uh, read the read the review in Teen Movie Hell. <laughs> the hero of that film also gets shrunk and ends up in another part of a woman's uh, carry on. Uh, okay, I'll check it out. <laughs> but but yeah. back to back to the idea of movies themselves as in, as infectious. I suppose Videodrome, you know, has a little bit of this. Once you watch 
oh, something. Sure, you brought yeah. that. You brought it up already. You know, once you watch yeah. something, you're 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 forever changed and you know mutated and and addicted and and hooked in some way. Um, I can't think of too many other movies, although Demons 2 does its own riff on Videodrome and, For and sure. other Cronenberg yeah. films too, like Shivers. It's, yeah. It takes place in an yeah. apartment complex and the, right. and the demon spreading goes on amongst the various apartments. Yeah. But I think, if I remember right, it comes in through a TV set. Uh, yes, it comes through the TV. Where there's yeah. Much like Videodrome. So yeah, it's, it's clearly the crackpot Italian take on Cronenberg and uh, tremendously effective. I love Demons too. There's a Masters it. of Horror episode, isn't there, where there's a film that kills anyone who watches it? Uh, oh. Is that the Cigarette Burns, the John uh, oh. Carpenter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How is it? I've never seen it. Yeah, Right, it was alright. Yeah, yeah. It was among the best. I yeah. only ever saw one of the Joe Dante ones and one of the John Landis ones. I never saw like the I later. saw the Don Coscarelli Incident on and off a mountain road. That was good. That was like the standout one that should have been a movie. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll. But, you know, going back to Videodrome for a moment, do you know the origin story of Videodrome? And this idea of movies as plague and, and potentially damaging? And no, I like guess that? not. So, uh, David Cronenberg was in a hotel room. And he put on uh, whatever the late night cable was at the time. It might have been in Europe, because I, I can't imagine uh, American broadcast, you know, cable company carrying this. He put it on, and the uh, Joe D'Amato movie, Emmanuel in America, was on. And despite that innocuous-sounding title, that is one of the, and, and you want to talk about Italian insanity, it is one of the most grotesque films ever released as entertainment. So it's Laura Gemser, the classic black Emmanuel. She's the her usual, you know, Lois Lane girl reporter type, but she's busting up a snuff film ring. And there, the grotesquerie that goes on in the depictions of these snuff films. And there's a scene with a horse, and it is it is truly just, it leaves you agog. There's no other word. And so Cronenberg saw this and said to himself, you know, anyone who would watch this as entertainment should be banned from society. No good can come from watching this movie. And anyone who wants to watch it, there's something wrong with them, and I don't want to be near them. And that is the genesis of Videodrome. He thought, well, what if a fascist regime had that same idea and the power to pull it off? And uh, we see some things in Videodrome, but most of what other people are seeing is right. remains unseen. And I imagine that's right. probably what Cronenberg had in mind for the the stuff yes. that's the yeah. most damaging and the most uh, yeah affecting. Wow. Well. And I should say, you can get a great copy of uh, Emmanuel in America, an amazing Blu-ray from uh, Blue Underground. Okay, great. <laughs> I recommend it. Well, so, you know, we're talking about uh, a, a subtext, um, po a possible subtext, that, you know, for a movie right. that, and you, 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 that you can look into um, or read, in, read into uh, Demons if you want. But for me, it's really... Not a deep movie, uh, and and, no. and uh, no. maybe the most perfect example I can think of is a movie where its pleasures are entirely on the the surface, which is very. It's a very stylish, very colorful movie that keeps moving and keeps topping itself. I mean, you know, a helicopter crashing through the theater. I mean, <laughs> you you want more than that, you know? It really does. It keeps going, and I have to say, watching it at the Essex Theater with my tuxedo held tight to me. 
I was like, all right, this is really ridiculous. And then it kept getting more ridiculous and more ridiculous. And by the time it gets to the most famous sequence, which is when the hero and the heroine hop on the motorcycle display, the display motorcycle that's in the lobby, and ride around with a sword slashing the demons to the incredible accept song, Fast as a Shark, I was like, I'm in. This is this is fantastic. Absolutely. This is great. Is that is that before or after the helicopter crash? I think it's right after, isn't it? It's right. It's right around the same time. <laughs> yeah. It's because once the helicopter crashes, they get up to the roof and then they get out on the street. Yeah, so. I mean it's more than enough. You so you mentioned seeing this in a in a lower yeah. Manhattan grindhouse. You had a, a yeah. lot of experience in in this. Uh, area i i gotta say i you know chicago had its share of them they were mostly the really grand old palaces downtown right. that had that had gone to seed i got to go inside the woods theater once not to see a movie but to visit um a, a staff member i knew there and i you know i spent a little bit of time there and it was you could you could see the magnificence but you know you could also if you stood in one place too long you know, could see the rats on the floor as well. Right. Um, well, that was the theaters on 42nd Street all had cats to keep the rats out. <laughs> but then you had to deal with those insane feral cats. Wow. I, it was the same deal. And and I have to say, the the, the loop in Chicago, those theaters are were incredible. The lineups of what they showed was incredible. There's a great, great, great website called Temple of Schlock that sometimes does the deuce versus the loop. And they'll show what was playing in each city at the same week in the 70s or 80s and oftentimes the loop is the champ and the only issue i think why it's forgotten is nobody was documenting it we had zines in new york uh we had the gore gazette we had sleazoid express we had psychotronic that were documenting the grindhouse experience and a lot of those writers also wrote for the village voice and uh you know uh soho weekly and the aquarian and, and other places so there was a lot of documentation of that, which is initially how I learned that, you know, I, I wanted, I became interested in it. And then um, I, I grew up in Brooklyn. And then in uh, 1982, I went to high school in Manhattan. And uh, my high school was on 16th Street. So it was two subway stops away from 42nd Street. So I would normally um, save a couple of bucks for my lunch money. And at least a few times a month, I'd go up to 42nd Street and insanely as a 14-year-old, go into those theaters and check out what was playing. Well, other than the feral cats to keep out the rats, what, what else can you tell us about, about these experiences? I mean... Oh, fights. I mean, it was just open. It was a big part of the attraction was the lawlessness. So it was crazy people in there. Um, you know, you'd, you'd be offered any kind of vice you could ever imagine. So dealers would be, um, you know, lining the walls of the theater, I guess. Yeah, down in the bathroom. Okay. I, I walked in on a drug deal once in the basement bathroom once. I, I don't know. I just was like, I, want, I wish I had just backed out slowly and gone up the giant staircase backwards, but I had to go to the bathroom. So uh, I was also more or less insanely drunk the entire time I was going to these places. So um, that helped. Well, you went, you uh, went, to, you were going, I mean, uh, from what I gather from your book, there was a good five or six year period where you were a regular denizen of oh, these yeah. places. Yeah. I, well then later after, after I failed out of my third college, then I just started going all the time because, and that's when I was just, I would just grab a 40 ounce of malt liquor and park myself there. Cause I had nothing else to do for a few years. But so. you were zining at the time, right? Yes. And, yeah. And that was the very end. Um, 
the very last grindhouses, and my name was Selwyn Harris, which just by coincidence were the two last grindhouses. My pen. The, la- the two last standing on Forty Second Street. On Forty Second Street, yeah. Um, they were they were like six when I started my zine Happy Land, and then there were two by the time it ended, and those were the two. Um, yeah, so I was writing about this, and I had absorbed everything in the Gore Gazette and Psychotronic and Sleazoid Express, and I wanted to top it by being more obnoxious, more insane, doing crazier things and writing about that, which I did. And the movie that truly captures the Grindhouse experience is a 2002 French film called Porn Theater. Jacques Nolo. If you ever get a chance to see that, yes. Well, yeah. I'm happy to say that was one that was included in our Projecting the Cinema series. Again, we had a choice. Right. It was either porn theater or a Filipino film, which came out around the same time called Cerbis. Uh, I don't know. It's good. Um, but we, we ended up going with porn theater instead. Um, but I, I agree. It, 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 even though it's France, you get a, you get a real sense of the, you are there. Of the sleeves. <laughs> yeah. And there's my, one of my, I'm going to just say this is my favorite shot in all of cinema. When they close it down and the, the camera is just mounted on the ceiling and the lights come on and just slowly it just pans back through the theater and you just see all the debris and chaos and carnage that has been left behind by these miscreants <laughs> we should probably also mention the sequence in uh the action movie shakedown from 1988 which that's a great movie I love do you know it. what theater that was the lyric theater okay that was the very first one i ever went to in 1982 i saw a humongous Oh, great. I saw The Beast Within, and I saw a little bit of you. Oh, Wanda, that's great. Well, if I remember yeah. right, I mean, this is this is towards the last days of, uh, you know, that whole strip on 42nd Street of theaters. And in the film, you see, I think it's Sam Elliott walking into the theater and just, you know. He lives in the basement. He lives in the basement yeah. of the lyric. Okay, but he's, yeah. you know, maybe yeah. someone comes to visit him, and they're they're stepping on crack, Peter crack vials the whole yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, it seems weird when you see people smoking in the theater in Demons. Yes. But, you know, smoking crack was completely allowed. Uh, it was just anything went. The, I got one time I got stopped by a manager. Me and another guy uh, were we, we had a we were both like our alcoholism had graduated to the point that we needed multiple 40 ounces to get through a movie. So we had these paper bags full of glass bottles. And the guy was like, yo, 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 my man. We're like, what's up? He said, let me, uh, he's like, drink whatever you want, but I'm worried about the glass. So he gave us popcorn buckets and we poured our beers into the popcorn buckets and drank it out. <laughs> well, I, I, I never got to go to any, any of those theaters. My, I lived in New Jersey for three years in the early 80s when a lot of them were still running. But my trips to New York theaters uh, were, were rare. Uh, I did get to see two films at the Ziegfeld and one, I think, at the Baronet or the Coronet, one of those two. But, but And this was, you know, from 1982 to 1985. And smoking was still going on. I guess I guess yeah. they had it relegated to the balcony. If you sat up in the balcony, you could smoke. It would be smoking sections. But remember, in the 70s, there were just ashtrays on the back of the seat in front of you. Now, I, I, I don't have any memory of that because with most of the theaters I went to, you know, at least in suburban Chicago, were, you know, were mm. smoking. You could only smoke in the lobby uh, at that right. point. But I'm, I'm... I was in Rat Pit, Brooklyn. So... <laughs> I remember the first time ever smelling pot was the three times, the first three times I remember ever smelling it were the three times I went to New York uh, 
theaters to see movies. Oh, really? Fantasia at the Ziegfeld when I was uh, 12 years old. Well, that old. makes sense, yeah. yeah. So At the Ziegfeld, wow. Yes. Yeah, that's the place to first see First time it. I saw it, my first trip to New York. It was before we moved out wow. to New Jersey, but uh, it was uh, 1981, the day, uh, the day Ronald Reagan was shot. I saw Fantasia at the Ziegfeld. Wow. And we went over to the—it was pouring rain in New York, and we went over to the Empire State Building— uh, you know, there was no visibility that day, but we went up to the top anyway. And as we were coming in, that the security guard had a little TV on us. We we figured out what was going on. So, yeah. um, okay. So it was one other thing about demons I wanted to talk about in terms of the style, which is the wonderful post-credit stinger on the film, where sure. the the cast is being listed. And the action is still going on on screen. And then it stops for a second and something very significant happens, which if you, you know, hopefully you've already <laughs> yeah. watched the film or, you know, you, yeah. you will watch it and, and, and see. But uh, I can't I can't think of too many other movies that did that. There were jokey post credit things like, you know, I remember the Muppet movie and Airplane both have, yeah. you know, post credit, you know, where right. the action returns for a second and. But, you know, it's, they're jokes. They're like punchlines. There are movies where, you know, you, you could, the credits keep rolling and you're watching a character, you know, walk or, you know, continue, but nothing significant yeah. happens. Uh, in ni- at the end of 85 is uh, Young Sherlock Holmes, where if you, stay, if you stay through the credits, you realize that the, the guy that Sherlock Holmes was fighting turns out to be Moriarty. But you have to, you have to stay through the oh. credits. And that's, so that's right around the same time. Um, but now it seems like, I mean, every movie, you know, all the Marvel films, you know, have, they, oh, they sell them on that. Like there's five stingers yeah, in the credits. Right. You want, there's a set of credits and then yeah. you get two sequences and then the rest of the credits. And then there's a final like stinger in yeah. the, uh, in the end or a tag along or yeah, the only thing I could think of is the weird photo montage at the end of uh, Night of the Living Dead. Right, which progresses the story Which a then bit. ends with yeah. the bodies uh, on fire. Um, but other than that, no, this is... And it's so weird, because the credits go really fast, and nothing stops. They're just like, you know, it's still going. And then there's that incredible punchline. And I just want to say, my favorite part of that is that it looks like, without giving it all away... It looks like the kid has a half a hot dog wedged in his <laughs> mouth when he takes that final action. Even, even, I mean, he's dubbed, but he even kind of flubs his line a little bit, too, doesn't he? Stop and start again. <laughs> he's good. He's a very convincing kid. Uh, and, yeah. And a damn good shot, too. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. so then this brings us to uh, the other aspect of the film that you know, was its big selling point, which was the soundtrack. Now, I have an older brother who right. was a bit of a metalhead who... You know, was a lot less timid than me and would go to see the the kind of grindhouse films, albeit at suburban theater. So, you know, he went to see Pieces and an Extro, which is you right. know, was sold as not all extraterrestrials are friendly, uh, two years after E.T. <laughs> uh, and he went to see Demons. And I think, you know, I think because of, you know, he liked the the unrated gore movies and he, you know, was, was into the soundtrack. I never, a, a soundtrack was never anything to get me into a theater. I mean, maybe I guess you'd, you know, you'd, you'd hear that, you know, somebody interesting had, you know, written their first score or, you know, you heard, you had heard a song already on the radio and you liked it and it didn't stop you, but it was never anything that, that brought me into a theater. But this was, uh, you know, a, a, a big selling point. Was there an actual Demons LP? Oh yeah. Yeah. 
and it has that incredible um, alternate uh, poster image of the demon hand holding the uh, movie theater seats. It's just gripping like the oh, seats great. of a theater with all the people freaking yeah, I, out. I don't yeah. think I've ever seen it. All right. So as the author of heavy metal movies, how metal is the soundtrack? Yeah. It's um, it, well, it's interesting because it's not exclusively metal, but it, I would say it is definitively metal. Um, and more than that, it encapsulates a very 1985 moment. And to me, this the, 85 was a really interesting year for movies and, and rock, you know, lately radio rock and pop music uh, to converge. So the three most memorable musical sequences in the movie are all set to metal songs. There's the opening of the film within a film, which is Save Our Souls by Motley Crue. And then the Accept Fast as a Shark. And then the uh, Pretty Maids song when the uh, demons are ascending up into the balcony and we see their glowing eyes. And um, then the it's kind of funny to think about the punk rockers that are, you know, led by Ripper who are sniffing coke. They're snorting cocaine out of a Coke can, which is hilarious, through a straw, a regular like Coca-Cola straw. With a bend in it. And, and we know they're punkers, yeah. what, by the way they dress, their hair? Or, uh, yeah, the, the girls, you know, the, his name is Ripper, and the, the girl is fully punked spiky out. Spiky hair. And- yeah, but they're, um, they're initially grooving to uh, a Go West song right. in the car, and they're, like, really into it. I kind of liked hearing that again. I That song, uh, We Close Our Eyes, right? Yeah. We Close Our Eyes by Go West. Yeah. Who would later, they later have an anthemic uh, theme song hit from Pretty Woman, the king of wishful thinking. That's one of my karaoke go-tos. So, um, but, so to me, it's, you know, it captures the moment because in 1985, there was sort of this sense, at least being a teenager that I perceived it among my friends, that all music was just sort of the same. It was just like what we listened to on the radio, what was on MTV, even though I didn't have MTV because I lived in stupid Brooklyn where we didn't have it till 86. But, um... And this seems very European, the choices of these songs. There's another, like, really wimpy new wave ballad that gets played later in the movie. Um, But so, and then I was thinking, so the ultimate, the American version of this soundtrack would be Vision Quest, which I had on uh, at the time, um, which is a really good uh, sports movie with uh, Matthew Modine and uh, Linda Fiorentino uh, about a, a kid training to be a high school wrestler. And that opens with Only the Young by Journey, and then it goes into Hungry for Heaven by Dio, and then Lunatic Fringe by Red Rider, which then every high school wrestling team came out to for the next 10 years. And then there's the two movies that Madonna performs in the movie, the two songs that she performs in the movie as a bar singer, which is Crazy for You and Gambler. And that, to me, is the full array of what was on the FM radio. What was I was listening to on my Walkman when I just had it going up and down the regular radio stations. And I think that the Demon soundtrack is very much the European equivalent of that. And the big crossover artist in all of this is Billy Idol. And because I was thinking, in a way, he was sort of, he just, he's an original 1977 punk from London, from Generation X. And then was a pop star, but but he kind of approached music as though punk, metal, pop, dance, new wave, it was all just the same thing. And as a result, I think he was, if not fully embraced, at least enjoyed by people who were into all of those subgenres. 
And that's why it's interesting to me that White Wedding gets such a prominent placement here. Yeah, it's the one song that, you know, I think still, I think other than the Go West song that I recognized on the soundtrack. But. Right, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's a classic rock song, so, I mean, it never went away. Still is everywhere, right. Yeah. But it's also, you know, 85 was also, if you want to go like a little more underground, uh, it was also the year that uh, punk and heavy metal, the crossover began with uh, Stormtroopers of Death and Carnivore and Corrosion of Conformity. And even I, like my senior year of high school, my two favorite bands were Rush and Husker Du. So it was kind of like everything was just, and I, it, it was odd because like a year earlier, that would have been a weird thing, weird two bands to be into. But there was just a moment where everything came together. And then I think Demons, because it's Demons and it's Italian and it's Splatter, and it has those three prominent songs, all of which I just noticed for the first time have a, a Motorhead bass line. It's like they just plugged into yeah. the Motorhead energy and read it rip. Um, I think it just becomes definitively metal that way. Mm. So that's my long-winded take on well, the I think soundtrack. You, I think you're right, and especially about it being uh, an egalitarian moment uh, in terms of distribution and, you know, and getting the music out there. I did have MTV starting in 1983, and, and I can say, you know, you, you were talking about radio the this experience of the of the soundtrack for this and the soundtrack for Vision Quest is like going up and down the dial. But MTV for that two or three year period, you know, was that egalitarian. Uh, on, on it was its like own. the national radio station. Yes, and it was it was the equivalent of the '60s pop station that would play the Supremes, Jimi Hendrix, and uh, you know, nineteen ten Fruit Gun Company yes. all in a row. And yeah. right after, as you say, the the kind of punk metal schism that happens in 86 is right when right around the time when MTV becomes more kind of segregated with you know right. shows and you, you, you get you're going to get certain blocks of this kind of music at this hour and and uh, you know and, and, and more of that but my memory of it for the the two years I watched it the most was that yeah you could have a, a Dio song followed by a Hall & Oates song right know? and as kids we just watched it and loved it so Right. So let's talk about the book, which is now yeah. in its third printing. Is that right? Yes. Heading into its third printing. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Up. Thank you. Thank you. When you were putting it together, what was, what was your selling point? I mean, I know, I, th I think you have to read the intro to know what, what, a, what a heavy metal movie is to you. But when you were, when you were pitching the book. So, um, the book, the genesis of the book began with, uh, I was at Quimby's bookstore here in Chicago, which is still open and still the best place in the world. And I had been waiting forever for this book, Destroy All Movies, Destroy All Movies, The Complete History of Punks in Film, to come out by uh, my friends uh, Zach Carlson and Brian Connolly. It I, I'm in Quimby's, blown to bits by how great this was, and, and jealous that I didn't write it, and... Um, I walked to the counter. I told uh, Liz Mason, who runs Quimby's, I said, I'm going home to pitch the heavy metal answer book. And uh, that's what I did. And so metal was a it was I wanted to do something a little more tricky than just, um, you know, movies with heavy metal music in it. So it the book became about defining much like Flickr, trying to define what's the what's in that black space that makes film so powerful. I tried to define the the spark of heavy metal in 
every movie ever made and, and winnow it down from there. So it were different levels. And it begins with, first you have concert films and documentaries, no brainers. Then you have movies about heavy metal. So like Spinal Tap, right in. Movies with heavy metal characters. So uh, Wayne's World, Beavis and Butthead, things like that. And then you go a little bit further down and movies that inspired heavy metal albums or songs. Uh, you know, um, Iron Maiden has about 50 of these damn things. So it's like, that was easy. That was 50 entries right there, um, including uh, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. That, that is an Iron Maiden song based on the novel and the movie. And what's metal about that is that it's about a uh, kid standing up to the oppressive British public school uh, system of soul crushing and conformity. And I thought, well, that is rather metal. So that will work. Uh, and then more fun was the stuff that just embodies the spirit of heavy metal. So that's when it's Conan the Barbarian and, you know, Mad Max. And, um, you know, anything along those lines. It's stuff that, you know, with, with heavy metal art, dragons, swords, fire, Satan, anything. Le yeah. Leather. Leather, yes. Chrome, yes, yeah. Well, now what about 2001 A Space Odyssey? Well, um, well it was a um, huge influence on Black Sabbath. And we should say that horror movies and heavy metal are intertwined from the birth of metal because they were uh, Black Sabbath before they were Black Sabbath were a band called they were a blues band called Earth and they were rehearsing in a studio once they looked across the street and they saw a long line of people lined up and again Italian to see Mario Bava's Black Sabbath uh, which is an anthology film with Boris Karloff and uh, Geezer Butler the bassist said isn't that funny all these people line up and pay money to get scared he said what if we like made music that scared people and that's when they took the name of the movie and uh, invented heavy metal and directed by Black Sabbath directed by we need to remind everyone again the father of the director yeah. of demons Mario Bava right and um, so 2001 was an influence on Sabbath in terms of uh, the monolithic sound, the space, the cosmic, the pondering, the meaning of mankind. And, um, and I think you can hear that in the music, but it's also, uh, you know, I, I, to me, that's the movie I, you know, I always say that's the greatest movie I've ever seen. It's not my, my favorite movie is Forbidden Zone from 1980, but I, I you know, 2001 is, you know, it's, it's a religious experience for me every time I watch it. And, um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to work it into the book, and I, I think I got there. You have to read the review, though. So, Yeah, I, I agree. I think you came up with a very unique spin on, on 2001. Wasn't there also a band, much like the way Spinal Tap wanted to have Stonehenge on stage? Didn't, wasn't there a band that surrounded themselves with giant monoliths? I'm absolutely sure there was. I, mean, I don't know the name <laughs> offhand, but I'm sure there was, yes. Spinal Tap and, did not come out of nowhere. <laughs> and how does Ace Ventura Pet Detective fit in? Oh, because... Cannibal Corpse is it's, at one point. So Jim Carrey was a death metal fan. So this is the most extreme form of heavy metal. This is with the Cookie Monster vocals. With the rah, rah, rah. So uh, at one point, Ace Ventura runs into a nightclub and his favorite band, Cannibal Corpse, is on stage performing Hammer Smashed Face. And he grabs the microphone and sings for a little bit and then jumps into the crowd and gets away. Jim Carrey, who was first introduced to a lot of movie audiences, lip-syncing Axl Rose's uh, 
<laughs> Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the jungle, jungle. That's in, right. <laughs> the in the Deadpool. Deadpool, which you include yes. in the book too, I think. Oh right? yeah, yeah. All right, so let's talk a, a little bit about some of the more obvious uh, uh, usual suspects. The the film Heavy Metal, the 1981 uh, animated venture. Now, I, I I wanted to bring this up specifically because even though we talked a lot about the rock and metal acts that are on the soundtrack to Demons. It, what really resonates uh, after watching the film uh, musically is the score by Claudio Simonetti, right, who, right, yeah. who was a member of uh, Goblin. Goblin. Yeah, who he's the, the chief sc- songwriter, yeah. Did the scores for Suspiria and a number of other Argento films. And, and Heavy Metal, even though it has this double LP soundtrack of you know, everybody from... Uh, Dio's Black Sabbath to Don Felder to Stevie Nicks. Yeah, it's uh, another one that's all-encompassing, but again, somehow heavy metal. But when you see the yeah. film, what really right. comes across is this magnificent full orchestral score by Elmer Bernstein. Right. right. <laughs> uh, which, which, in its own way, uh, I, would, I, I imagine you'd agree, inhabits its own heavy metal kind of aesthetic of yeah know. i mean absolutely i mean you know uh s- symphonic music is is you know metal is a combination of blues and classical music and uh bernstein you know certainly gets it right completely with that score in and, terms of the grand power of a symphony to communicate a metal feeling like nothing else kind of per- perfectly wonderfully bombastic actually yes really. yeah um and it it's uh the, the imagery comes from the magazine uh right. which was a, 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 originally a french yeah metal herlant meant screaming metal that's such a cool name <laughs> and then a lot of the stories were just translated into english and then there was new content created yeah for the... yeah and then they yeah then they became its own thing for a while yeah owned by national lampoon yeah this is you know kind of the the classic uh you know, metal imagery with, you know, uh, large-breasted uh, blonde... <laughs> yeah, maidens. Yeah. Warrior maidens. Flying on dragons flying with on giant dragons. swords. Right. I, I, I say in the book, I list, like, it's probably 66.6 uh, most metal moments. Number one is Nigel Tufnell's amp going to 11 in Spinal Tap. But number two is the dragon attack set to Mob Rules by Black Sabbath in heavy metal. <laughs> Because that's just the that's just 1970s van art come to life brilliantly. Now you mentioned Spinal Tap, so yeah. uh, how 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 to your metal fandom eyes, how much yeah. do they embody an actual uh, metal band? I, I, a thousand percent. I mean, but this is the thing: Spinal Tap embodies every band. If you've ever been in a band, you've you were in Spinal Tap. You know, from the girlfriend. To you know the the you know it's a brotherhood like no other, and nobody hates like brothers when they're turned against each other. But nobody is bonded like brothers either. And you know I I've heard so many musicians, or I've read or or seen interviews of so many musicians through the years, um, not just metal, but like Tom Petty. I remember Greg Allman said that he thought about suing Spinal Tap because somehow they got their stories from the Allman Brothers and turned them into a movie. And Tom Petty said that he and the Heartbreakers 
really did go to Graceland, really did try to harmonize at Elvis's grave, and couldn't believe they were watching that in the movie. <laughs> All right, and then there was and one. You of, know, I mean, it, and it's true from the Beatles to a kid in a garage now. It's sure. all Spinal Tap. Sure, that the, that thing you do, you know, the the, yeah. the one hit wonders and right. Every, and I think um, you know metal. I think they chose metal because first off, it, it's the the funniest looking of all rock music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know they got to show off their musical chops. You have to be really good to play heavy metal. You have to be technically. A, a, a talented musician and they those guys really can write songs and really can play yeah and you know the, the 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 lyrics of the songs are almost the perfect match for some of demon's lines of dialogue at least the movie <laughs> yeah. within a movie yes. yeah. absolutely yeah. yes <laughs> the, they will make cemeteries your cathedrals and <laughs> yeah, cities your totally. tombs yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay so and one more one more film i wanted to bring up uh, also from the 80s uh, the, which has often been described as a real-life spinal tap. Penelope Spheris' The Decline of Western Civilization Part Two: The Metal Years. Just brilliant. Um, brilliantly observed. I mean, she is an incredible filmmaker. And it's so, the, the direction of that film is so witty. The choice of edits, the sound effects that she puts in there, and, you know, what it doesn't answer is the question of how in 1982 you had Decline of Western Civilization 1, which was all about punk and all about this quest for authenticity and to kind of upset the social order. And then six years later, you have the metal years, which is all about, I want to be a rock star. Um, and I don't know that that was her job. Her job was to just put the camera there and document it. And I mean, to me, it's just, it's, that movie is pure joy. It's so much fun to watch. Um, And, you know, I, I, I'm not a fan of that kind of metal, really. I never was. I mean, I can appreciate it to some degree. Um, You know, I love, I mean, Alice Cooper and Kiss are my, you know, the bedrocks of my metal fandom. And those guys are essentially the unknowing children of those two bands. And, and Kiss in that movie are so hilariously obnoxious. Uh, this part with Gene Simmons is in a lingerie store and like one of the paid models walks by and he's saying, and I, and I, and he looks at her and goes, and I, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One last topic. The... Uh Back to the idea of movies as addictive now that, yeah. you know, we're now six months into movie theaters being shut down, for at least for the most part. Uh, I guess I just want to ask, how are you as a lifelong theater denizen doing? I, with the- I mean, I'm, I'm at the point where I have to, like, practice acceptance every day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're not coming back. Um, certainly not as it once was. Uh I, a few months ago, was flipping on the TV and going by sort of the Big Bang Theory, and the characters on that show were in a movie theater lobby, and I wanted to jump into the screen. I was like, <laughs> give me popcorn soda. I just want to be there. Um, you know, it's over. It's over the way that the Grindhouse experience is over, and, um, you know, I, 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 don't, I, I don't write about new stuff anyway, so I'll continue to write about old stuff like movie theaters. Yeah. Well, will you go a little bit further and give us your speculation about what the landscape is going to look like, you know, when, when and if movie theaters do return? 
if they return, I mean... Man, I guess they're open now, but I'm not going. No, no. It's, it is weird. I kind of like how weird it is looking at, like, the box office gross, <laughs> which is something that always annoyed me. But now it's like, oh, the, the Liam Neeson action movie made $2.4 million to top the box office. So there's that bizarre historic element of it. Or The Empire Strikes Back is the number one movie. No, oh, that makes me want to burn down the whole universe. But um, the, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, will it be open just for blockbusters? And will they charge more money just for blockbusters? Um, which is, seems like it was headed that way anyway. So did this just accelerate it toward that? No, well, it makes more sense because if it's just blockbusters, then movies are going to have to be more expensive to make. Right. You know, And I remember... I remember the architects of everything miserable in cinema, <laughs> uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, talking about that and saying, well, probably what we'll do is um, it'll be priced according. So you'll go see an indie movie for five bucks. But if you want to go see Iron Man, it might be like 50 bucks. Mm. And, you know, maybe we'll see it. But there won't be any indie movies to see in a theater. And and if they release this James Bond movie on, uh, you know, Netflix and Apple, I read, were fighting over it, then... I mean, why go? You know, I mean, my my TV is great here. Um, you know, so, and, and I mean, I wouldn't go to see a new James Bond movie anyway, but if I was, I'd just watch it at home. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know that they would come back. Um, I don't know that kids, which is what it depends on, I don't think kids care. I think they want to look at their phones and play video games. So, so I think it's over. I mean, I kids mean, don't like music. That's the weird thing that I, the kids in my family like they have no, no interest in music. By by age eight, that was you know along with movies, my driving obsession in life was pop music and rock. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly one of mine, and you know, and and everybody we knew, you know. Had, yeah. So, yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no sense of any kind of interest in anything popular uh, that they're hearing on the radio it's just no. uh, yeah we'll we'll have uh we'll have a cinematech back again i can i look forward to that I, look there's you know i'll say this cinematech the music box i think there's always going to be places um like that for cinephiles for us that are dedicated to keeping this alive while we are alive at least and that's great but in terms of you know, I, I think you're more likely to have a commercial rock band become popular again than we are to have, like, the old movie-going experience where you could just go to a multiplex and see 10 different types of movies playing and choose one and just have that uh, night out. All right. Well, we'll end on that. Thanks so much for Thank you. This was great. Yeah, Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>